Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Environmental groups say there were some wins in the recently concluded New York State legislative session, including a new constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to clean air and water. But business groups say the provision could lead to all sorts of complications. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. This November, New York voters will decide whether the state's constitution should be amended to guarantee a right to clean air and clean water. The issue will be on the ballot now that the New York State Senate and Assembly gave final passage to a constitutional amendment earlier this month. Environmental groups say it would require businesses and state and local governments to make better decisions going forward when they need to approve projects that might potentially cause pollution. Peter Iwanowicz is with Environmental environmental advocates. Voters are going to be asked a simple question. Should we add to New York State's Bill of Rights the right to clean air, clean water, and a healthful environment? Liz Moran with the New York Public Interest Research Group says the idea for the amendment came after the water crisis in Hoosick Falls in eastern New York, where it was found that the chemical PFOA used to make nonstick cooking pots and pans had seeped into the drinking water from the former St. Gobain plant. Residents had higher than normal rates of cancers associated with exposure to the chemical, and the litigation is continuing. We spoke in the park outside the state capitol. A lot of thought around advocating for the constitutional right to clean air and water actually was born out of what happened in Hoosick Falls. Um, And the thought was, well, had New York had something like this, would St. Gobain have been cited right on top of their drinking water source? The state's business council opposes the amendment, saying its broad language could lead to all kinds of complications, including frivolous lawsuits against companies with facilities cited under existing environmental rules. The council's Ken Pakalski says it would create an incredible amount of uncertainty. The fact that it's so broad, it says nothing about how it would be implemented. You'd imagine this would be used to challenge all types of private sector activities. And quite frankly, uh, we could see this as having unintended consequences. He says it could even lead to litigation against new clean energy, solar or wind farms, if a neighbor objects. Polkowski says New York already has numerous protective regulations, including the State Environmental Quality Review Act, or CEQRA, as well as an environmental litigation unit in the state attorney general's office. And he says there's already a clause in the state constitution to guarantee protection and preservation of natural resources. Iwanowicz, with Environmental Advocates, says excess litigation hasn't happened in other states where the right to clean air and water has been approved. Actively. And we haven't seen in other states that have these self-executing lights, in, like in Montana and Pennsylvania, that this has led to a flood of litigation. Moran with NYPERC says existing environmental rules have not always been implemented fairly and can be subject to political pressure. She says a clear constitutional right can make it easier for regulatory agencies to do the right thing in the future. Will there be lawsuits? Probably. I, I think that's how these sort of things get, end up getting defined. But ultimately... This is a real moral question, which is, 
everyone understands that they have a right to clean air and water. But unfortunately, there are so many things that are constantly jeopardizing this very basic human right. In addition to the right to clean air and water ballot question, the legislature also approved a $3 billion Environmental Bond Act to be considered by voters. That measure won't be on the ballot, though, until November of 2022. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week, primaries across New York and one of the major ones in New York City, the mayoral primary, where Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams appears to have taken the primary. However, it could be weeks before we know who's actually on top in the city's first major contest to use ranked choice voting. And with the uptick in crime and gun violence, homicides in New York City, you and I have been talking about this, probably makes sense that Eric Adams, a former police officer, is in the lead. Well, pretty much as we had predicted, Eric Adams at least has the most votes. That doesn't mean he's going to be the mayor. There is this transference of votes, and it may go from one to another. Right now, we're hearing that it's too early, although Adams has done quite respectably in his attempt to win the mayorality. Look, he's going to get some votes because he is black. We also know that he is in a position to capitalize, if that's the right word, because it's a bad word, on the idea that there's so much crime out there. Homicides are up, and they're up terribly. Interestingly, I was watching CNN, and they came up with a statistic that other violent crimes are either set where they are or are down. So what is it about murder? It's all about guns. And guns are a real problem because there are just too many of them out there. And people are killing each other. You sock somebody, you're not going to kill them, perhaps. But if you fire a bullet into somebody's abdomen, you're going to kill them or brain. And that's what's been happening. So until America comes to its senses and does something about guns, something, by the way, that most people want, a majority of people want, it isn't going to happen. But the Republicans have seized on this. We are not going to touch this, even if it's going to cost all of these lives. Now you bring it to the American people and you say, hey, we're for it. The president of the United States is going to go on television, talk about it, and it's up to you. Do you want guns and you want the killing to continue or not? That is something that people will not tolerate. You elect Adams because he's a former police captain. You take a poll and the American people want some reasonable gun control. And yet the Republicans as a minority know that this is gold for them. They have been pushing on it and they will continue till there's a rise up of the people who say no. Let's go to the Manhattan DA's race. This is a huge race, and the person who wins, we don't know yet, but as of Tuesday night, Alvin Bragg and Talley Farhadian Weinstein appear to have risen to the top. The issue, of course, is they'll inherit the Trump investigation from Cy Vance, who is leaving office. David, we do know that the issue is if anybody has got the guts or the wherewithal or the horses to take on Donald Trump. That's what it's all about. Now, I must say this DA's race was pretty well in the sub-basement. A lot of people didn't know a lot about the mayoral race and they didn't know an awful lot about the DA race. So we're going to see. 
Now, remember that unlike the mayoral race, the DA's race is not one of those systems where votes get transferred. So whoever gets the most votes is going to win. And so we will have probably an answer on that one a lot sooner than we will on the mayoral race, where they're going to still be pushing all the chessmen around to see who's doing what. You know, it is a huge question. Whether a new person has the ability to do it is another whole story, and we'll see. But the eyes of the nation will be on whoever becomes the DA. Well, we saw a huge defeat out in Buffalo, Alan. The incumbent, Byron Brown, was beaten by India Walton, a progressive who would become the Buffalo's first female mayor. More progressive? That's somewhat interesting when we look at the situations going on in cities. David, here's the way it works. If people are not happy with the situation that they are in, they look out for something different. Sometimes that difference is a progressive. Sometimes that difference is a conservative. Look at New York City, for example, where Eric Adams becomes mayor, maybe, depending on how these votes are counted. Why? Because he was a policeman. In other words, there was a conservative push. Now, some will say, well, but he was a reformer policeman. Yeah, but he was a policeman. So let's understand that people will not always go more conservative or more progressive. They will often go, let's get somebody else in here. Enough is enough. Well, interesting article from Nick Reisman about Trump reaching his hand into New York and New York House races. They mentioned Katko race. They mentioned his influence and in helping the rise of Representative Elise Stefanik. They talk about Tom Reed's district. It goes on and on. But one of the things that he seems to be influencing as well is the governor's race with the Republican Party seemingly poised to anoint Lee Zeldin. Well, the Zeldin phenomena is beyond my understanding. The Republicans have always had the ability to get a person who has got both the Republican and Democratic credentials who can be approached on both sides. I call them Republicrats. People don't like it, but I don't care. The fact is, if you get a George Pataki or if you get a Lindsay, much too early for many of the listeners to this program, you get somebody who you think will not be primarily a Republican. There's always been an opportunity in New York State to do that, and the Republican Party has always gone for the absolute losers. Why? Because in this case, Donald Trump. We have this guy Zeldin. What is he? He's a Trumper. You can say anything you want, but how can he win in blue state New York if you're representing Trump, one of the most unpopular politicians in history? The Republicans do this. They are scared of Trump, just like the members of Congress are. Nobody wants his finger coming down on them, and that's what would happen. So they make decisions, which will mean their defeat at the polls. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was in Colony this week, pushing to make the Universal School Meals Program permanent. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. 
Gillibrand was joined by fellow Democrat Congressman Paul Tonko at Saddlewood Elementary School. Gillibrand says the Universal School Meals Program Act of 2021 would make free school meals for all students permanent. Providing universal school meals during the pandemic has made an incredible difference to students and to families. In April, the USDA announced that it would continue to provide meals through 2021 to 2022 academic year and extend the pandemic EBT program, giving millions of families a lifeline and peace of mind for the next school year. But we have to go much further. Over the past several years, we've seen a significant increase in families qualifying for free and reduced lunch programs across the capital region. If the pandemic waivers are allowed to expire, families of four who just who live on just $34,000 a year would not be able to participate. We can't go back to a system where only some children get to eat for free, families are burdened with paperwork or school lunch debt, and children don't participate in the free meal programs because they're embarrassed about what their classmates will think. Gillibrand says though the Department of Agriculture is providing free school meals through COVID-19 waivers through the 2021-2022 school year, she wants to ease hunger year-round. We also know that families who, help, who need help putting food on the table during the year will also need help during the summer months. This bill would provide that by making every community eligible for the summer food service program and by adding an extra $60 per child per month to EBT through the summer EBT program will help these families purchase the nutritious foods they need. Officials say even before the COVID-19 pandemic, over 30 percent of students in the South Colony Central School District received free and reduced lunch. Sherry Tomaski of Hunger Solutions New York says the barriers to free lunches must come down. In New York State, about 3,600 schools currently provide universal meals to all students. But hundreds of other schools are eligible but are unable to do so because of the financial constraints and the barriers inherent in the program. And beyond that, many students who may be eligible for free and reduced price meals are unable to access them sometimes through barriers such as paperwork or the more insidious barriers like stigma or embarrassment. Many families do not want to apply even though they need the assistance. And low-income students in high school often drop out of the program where we see participation fall because they understand the perception of the program. Eligible students sometimes miss deadlines or bear the brunt of school meal debt that they are then burdened with when they have to pay full price for meals. Tonko from the 20th District says the legislation would counter inequity. You know, before the pandemic, uh, it's fair to say that there were inequities and that there was food insecurity. Uh, but the pandemic exacerbated many of those statistics and those situations. Uh, it illuminated a lot of the injustice and unfairness that is part of our, of our world. And so this legislation, the Universal School uh, Meal Program, um, is about stamping out some of that inequity and some of that unfairness. Gillibrand is pushing for the inclusion of the Universal School Meals Program Act of 2021 in the upcoming Child Nutrition Reauthorization, currently being negotiated by the Senate Agriculture Committee. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Last week, I sat down with cannabis lawyer Matthew Schweber to talk about the complex legal issues surrounding the new cannabis law that allows adults to use the drug recreationally. He also talked with us about setting up businesses in the market, as well as social equity and other issues. Here's the second part now of my interview with Matthew Schweber. There's a huge hurdle. You've already mentioned it, but it's worth going into a little further. And that is, you know, you mentioned businesses, you recommend raising a million dollars in capital. You know, let's say they get through all the hoops and they get that business established. The community accepts it. They get it set up. They start to make money. They start to wrap the rubber bands around the cash. And then they say, oh, wait a minute. I don't have a bank I can put it in because the federal government law intersects with state laws and the federal government does not view marijuana favorably. It's legal on the federal level still. And yet there has been some positive moves. At least we've seen some legislation moving through the Congress that would allow banks to accept marijuana funds from states that legalize it. This is a huge problem. It is a huge problem. Uh, I think you're alluding to the Safe Banking Act. The Safe Banking Act would actually ease some of the burdens that I've delineated prior because for two reasons. First of all, it would address the problem that you just mentioned and that it would allow banking institutions to more readily um, absorb cannabis companies' businesses uh, as depositories. But also, it would potentially enable some of these cannabis companies to access the kinds of traditional loans that most small businesses rely on. For instance, most companies, most small businesses rely on payroll loans that their local bank will provide to them. That's something that a cannabis company can't access at the moment. Safe banking ostensibly should allow that. But safe banking, unfortunately, has reached an impasse in the federal in the federal government. Uh, it has passed the House of Representatives. But it's never been successful in developing enough momentum in the Senate. And indeed, there's some Democrats who support safe banking who have decided to introduce it as part of a larger cannabis legalization bill. So the truth of the matter is safe banking and the, the kinds of protections that it would provide are probably not within the likely of being enacted anytime soon. Which is really something. I mean, you do see the effect of the demonization in some sense of marijuana as it faces such a hard time in the federal government. And let's take a little side trip with that statement in that you told me in a note that you more recently drafted guidelines for the White House Counsel's Office that would enable certain federal prisoners serving prison sentences for marijuana offenses to obtain clemency. But we've also seen in Biden's administration right now that some folks who aren't supposed to have marijuana on their records in the White House were let go because of use of marijuana. Yeah, I think I think what's fascinating is that the bike, the Biden administration is a microcosm of the hypocrisy of the drug war. Um, what what is effectively happening is you have people, you have this sort of lingering residual bias that has caused the Biden administration to penalize people who have admitted to marijuana use, but at the same time, the Biden administration has acknowledged 
the the racial injustices of the drug war, and their White House counsel's office is seemingly trying to prepare clemency guidelines along the lines of what the the Trump administration has done. So the Trump administration, whatever you may think of it, one of the things that they did well was the First Step Act. And the First Step Act and some of the clemency decisions that the Trump administration made in its waning days made a concerted effort to release people who had been serving um, extraordinary draconian sentences in many instances for marijuana-only offenses. And the guidelines that we've drafted for the Biden administration are designed to prepare guidelines for the Justice Department to begin to continue that policy of amnesty and clemency for people who are serving these draconian sentences. And there are a number of prisoners, um, just a couple of names that come to mind, like um, Luke Scaramazzo and Lance Glor in particular, who are people who were complying with the medical marijuana laws in the states in which they were operating and nonetheless prosecuted, or should I say persecuted, by the federal government and charged with marijuana offenses under federal law. And the guidelines that we've written for the Biden administration uh, in collaboration with the Weldon Project are designed to rectify that injustice and grant these people release from prison. What's your sense that they'll get clemency? Uh, that's an excellent question. I, I think that... Um, I think that there's a good chance. Um, I think that the Biden administration recognizes that this is an issue that has some political valence to it. I think um, if you look at the election returns, uh, you can see some of the increases in the Trump administration's support in the Hispanic community and the African-American community between 2016 and 2020 can be attributed to some of the amnesty and clemency, his, his notions about criminal justice reform or his policies of criminal justice reform. I think Biden, if he hasn't already, then he certainly should be focusing on that as a political issue and recognizing that the time for the drug war has passed and that the American people in overwhelming majorities believe that marijuana should be legalized. Let's go back to New York for a minute. What's the MRTA? So the MRTA is the adult use statute that the legislature passed in March and the governor signed, I believe, on March 31st of this year. The problem is that now that the implementation of the bill has stalled, the governor had an opportunity to appoint the, his cannabis control board prior to the end of the legislative session, but the legislature and the executive branches couldn't agree on appointments to a number of agencies. So at the moment, there is no cannabis control board in the state of New York, and the appointment to that board likely will be delayed. The hope is that the governor will call a special legislative session after the New York City primaries conclude and that he will be able to make appointments to the board. But at the moment, the program is stalled. Sometimes we say that's accidentally on purpose. In any case, let's move to another issue, which is yes. CBD, right? You have CBD, you have hemp, you have something called Delta 8, and the farm bill is mixed in there somewhere too. Can you explain this to us? Sure. So 
In 2018, the federal Congress decided to remove, uh, for a very long time, cannabis, the psychoactive variety, and hemp, the non-psychoactive variety, were treated similarly. And this is largely because in the 1930s, when cannabis first was targeted by a prohibition by the federal government through the Marijuana Taxation Act, federal law enforcement authorities said they couldn't really differentiate between the psychoactive versions and the regular version or the non-psychoactive version. They look exactly the same for those that aren't in the know. You couldn't tell just by looking at it. Correct. Correct. I mean, if you're a real horticulturalist, the hemp plants are typically much taller, but right. it would be difficult from, a, from the purposes of a federal law enforcement authority who hasn't been adequately trained. There's also some belief, and one that I don't necessarily dispute, that the cotton industry had a large role in lobbying the federal government at that time to exclude hemp or to treat hemp similarly to marijuana because they didn't want a commodity that could potentially compete with cotton. It's an opinion that was held, has been held for a very long time and one that I dismissed until I did some reading recently, and there seems to be a great deal of merit to it. There's certainly merit to the fact that hemp can be used for multiple purposes, clothing, oils, yes. and, and rope. And that was sort of, for a number of reasons, that was the kind of the hypocrisy and the damage that was being done by our drug war on farmers who have been distressed and who have been largely been forgotten by the U.S. economy. And the Farm Bill in 2018 was an effort to address this by making very clear that non-psychoactive hemp, and that was hemp with less than 0.3% THC, was no longer treated the same way under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, and it's largely resulted in a burgeoning CBD industry. I'm happy to talk about Delta-8 if you'd like, which is really a psychoactive substance. It is a chemical isomer of Delta-9, which is THC, which we're all familiar with. It's the compound that gets us high from marijuana, and it's sold pretty much everywhere throughout the state. The state finally closed this loophole, New York State, that is, in a number of other states, and have banned it. But it's still very prevalent, and I think it's both a danger to the marijuana industry and, in some respects, to the hemp industry because the hemp industry should be flourishing because of all of those other uses that you and I have discussed in addition to non-psychoactive CBD. Delta-8 is actually a psychoactive substance. Matt Schweber again with the law firm Feuerstein and Kulik, LLP. It's been a pleasure talking to you and we can't thank you enough for joining us on the Legislative Gazette this week. Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2126. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. David Gustina.